but, uh, but uh, he came down to where she was and took her down to the front, and she prayed the sinner's prayer. And uh, she, uh, her testimony was this, that after she came home and told my dad, who was unsaved, a hard-charging union grocery man there at the Safeway, she said, I, I think I just did the stupidest thing I've ever done. <laughs> she said, I, uh, I said I became a Christian. So really, uh, her mind, her thoughts weren't what we would typically associate with a, a transformation. But what happened was God did, in fact, come to live in her because at that moment, she did accept Christ, but she just didn't realize it. But over the ensuing days and weeks, her appetites began to change, her thoughts began to change, and then she realized she had been transformed. And that's what happens. It changes us. When Christ comes to live in us, we begin to have different ideas and concepts and certainly something that definitely changes is our mouth. (laughs) Our tongue, our words are transformed. And so what happens? It's exchange. And we trade these triflings for treasure. And so two weeks ago, we began this beautiful passage in Ephesians chapter 4. And today, with God's grace, we'll finish it. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for the divine exchange. Thank you that you gave us the nature of Christ. I'll never get more of Christ. And thank God I'll never have less of Christ. I thank you that you have written my name in the Lamb's book of life. And I pray that, Lord, I'll be worthy of that exchange. Thank you for the truth you've been teaching us. In Christ's name, amen. When God recreates a person in Christ, it's an amazing transformation. And that really is the theme of the book of Ephesians. Remember now, Ephesus was this town in what we would call Turkey today, Asia Minor back then. It uh, was uh, well known for its, uh, its temple of Diana. And uh, there was lots of occultic things going on there. And they would just love, you know, the little figurines, and even today, many Middle, many Middle Eastern cities, you can walk around and buy these little figurines. And they were, when we were in Greece, they were trying to sell us the eye. I said, what is that thing? Looks kind of like an eyeball. They said, it's the eye. And uh, I said, I don't think I want that thing. And uh, you know, many tourists, you know, and they get, they buy all these demonic little symbols and put them on their shelves. My friend, don't do that. Uh, you know, be careful about what you're buying. And uh, I don't want no eyeball. And that was of Ephesus. They had these little figurines of, of Diana and others. And Paul said, you don't need that stuff. You have the power of God. And that's what he's talking about in Ephesus to these folks. It's a, it's a demonstration of the power of God. Now he said, because Christ is in you, you need to be different. As is typical in most of the Pauline epistles, the first half is doctrinal. The second half is very practical. And so he begins to get specific. And one of the things he tells us is that when you become a Christian, you ought to talk differently. Your tone ought to be different. Your words you use ought to be different. How you talk to your wife, your husband, your children, your people you work with. In the community, we should be different. And, uh, of course, not all communication is verbal. In fact, uh, much communication is nonverbal. And uh, we are always reading about a policeman who will 
arrest somebody, not really for what they said, but for their attitude. And uh, they're resisting because what we say uh, is, uh, or what we communicate is often nonverbal. But we're going to talk today about these transformation that needs to take place. Now, you may remember, let's do a little bit of review here. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, a true Christian, first of all, replaces lying with legitimacy. Why should we be careful about the truth? Because lying is devastating to relationships. When you truly love somebody, you won't deceive them. You cannot move forward in the same direction without truth. It's like uh, two oxen in the same uh, yoke trying to go in often different directions. Lying uh, just makes you go in different directions. And that's what he says here. Your members one of another. You need to make sure you don't lie to each other. Number two, we're going to replace rage with restraint. One of the most unique and commands in all the Bible, to be angry. <laughs> I don't know that many of us need a command to be angry, but uh, what he's talking about here is that uh, we... Go ahead and uh, be grieved at sin and be enraged at the, at the injustices that go on, but don't let the slanderer put an earworm inside of your ear where you just kind of mull it over until to the point you get um, sinful. In fact, what he said was, be angry and sin not. I like what a well-known theologian said. He said, if we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. Then number three, we've noticed in verse 28 uh, that uh, if you have been stealing in the past, don't steal anymore. And we replace stealing with sharing. And we found out that really we go a long way at helping our tongue when we get busy with our hands. And that's what he said in that verse. He said, quit being a busybody and just get out there and do something with your hands instead of stealing Go out there and work so you can give something away. First, and then the fourth point in our message was replace destruction with construction. And in that verse, he says that we ought to enter into the ministry of grace. Sometimes people say, I wouldn't mind being in the ministry. Well, praise God then, because we all can be and should be in the ministry. The ministry of grace. We ought to inspire people. We ought to think, T-H-I-N-K, before we speak. Is it truthful? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it needful? Is it kind? Now, I'm going to go through so many things here this morning. In fact, as I was studying this two weeks ago, I realized I had to split the message into two. And then as I came to it this morning again, I realized I've got so much material, I should do it into three. But because of the nature of what we're doing, we're going to get it into just this one here this morning. So, but uh, and if you want to find out what I just said, think. <laughs> You can get the podcast, but uh, so because I'm gonna, we're gonna roll through this here this morning. All right, number five, and that is uh, as we're bringing it up today. Replace griping with grace. No more griping. It's time to give grace. Verse thirty-one. Let all bitterness. In fact, let's read it together, if you would, please. Verse thirty-one. Ready, begin. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Six specific gripes to replace with grace. First of all, get rid of bitterness. Instead of bitterness, let's have grace. What is bitterness? Bitterness is smoldering resentment, brooding. It's living with a chip on your shoulder. It's uh, just uh, fuming over every little insult and injury received. 
The actual idea there is an unforgiving spirit. The Greek word is pikros, P-I-K-R-O-S. It is exactly the word that we get picric acid. And if you know anything about uh, old uh, munitions and old uh, things that they used to use back in the day for explosives, you will know that the primary use of picric acid is for explosives. They used it back late 1800s, early 1900s. It was the primary thing that they used, but it was kind of unstable <laughs> and sometimes blow up the people that were making the bombs. But uh, it is also an antiseptic. You maybe have seen that brown antiseptic they, they use to kind of clean things. It also is a, is a very, it, it stains. So it's what's used uh, in the Southeast Asian culture. It's what's used for uh, the henna that they would draw on a um, bride's uh, hands and others' uh, hands. It's, uh, and it stays for like 30 days. And so as I was thinking about that, that same picric acid there, that's the basis of what is used for henna. You know, that's exactly what God is saying. It's an acid that stains. It stains the soul. And imagine what it's doing to the soul. A little grudge can be uh, such a stain on a relationship. I read of a couple recently in England. They lived together for 12 years as silent partners. Now, the first 18 years, the years of their one child, uh, they at least communicated somewhat. After that child left, they then lived together for another 12 years, and during that 12 years, they never spoke with one another. The lawyer who was handling the case said, I really can't explain it, but he said for the last 12 years, they were going through a divorce. He said for the last 12 years, this husband and this wife have never spoken to each other. They just were able to figure it out where when one would come in the house, the other would leave. They would be in separate places. And, but the ironic thing was about the whole thing was after all that time, they couldn't even remember what the hassle had all been about. They didn't remember <laughs> that grudge. And that's what we're talking about here, that bitterness. All right, the second gripe that we're going to replace with grace, wrath. That's the Greek word thumos, T-H-U-M-O-S. It's the word for heat. Have you ever heard anybody saying, I'm just blowing off a little steam? Well, be careful because <laughs> steam's not always that harmless. It can really burn some people seriously. It is the idea of explosive outward reactions. Have you been following what's going on lately in America, the crazy anger explosions? I mean, people, you can't even go to a Popeye's restaurant without wondering if someone's going to, you know, go crazy anymore. And this week, I, uh, I think the Thursday night NFL game, the, the, one of the defensive ends got so mad at the quarterback, took his helmet off, started beating the quarterback on the head. And I mean, people are going crazy anymore. Explosive anger. A lady once come to the great Evangelist Billy Sunday and tried to rationalize her angry outburst and said, Mr. Sunday, there's really nothing wrong with losing my temper. I just get over it so quickly. He said, I blow up and then it's all over. And Mr. Sunday looked at her and said, ma'am, so does a shotgun. <laughs> and look how much damage that will leave behind. Yeah, it's just a big explosion. It's all over. But well, I tell you what, that's some serious danger. There's a third gripe that we're going to get rid of, and that is anger. Anger. That is an outburst followed by a deep and dark, settled hostility. It's actually the word translated in other parts of the New Testament as the word vengeance. And I think that really gives the sense of it. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, dearly, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, 
give place. Just get over it. Go around it. Don't, don't nurse it. For it is written, quoting the Old Testament. Paul loved to quote the Old Testament. For it is written, the Old Testament scriptures, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. You know, I've always been fascinated with escalators. For some reason, I just always, I love those things. I just, it intrigues me how those steps just go up there like that and, you know, they disappear. Frankly, as a child, I was even fearful of those things. I kind of figured my foot was going to get caught in there and get, you know, get sucked in there. I was thinking how that really vengeance is like an escalator. Because, you know, once you get on that escalator, you, there's no getting off. And you're going up. And, uh, you know, when one person reaches out and tries to nip at another person, and then the person nips at the other person, it's kind of like the dogs, you know. One dog starts barking, the other dog starts barking, then another dog. Pretty soon, the whole neighborhood, all the dogs are barking at once. And that's kind of what vengeance is. It, you know, the time is, you better get off that escalator quick, because if you're not careful, it'll take you all the way up to the top, and who knows what's going to happen there. Then there's clamor. That's the outward expressing of anger. The idea is uh, Christians should not yell. That's basically what it's saying. Don't yell. Don't be a hollerer. Don't be a yeller. You know, rage attacks are on the rise. Husbands uh, enraged at uh, their wife or their children. Wives yelling at children and husbands, dads and moms towards their kids, uh, teenagers towards their parents, uh, people in vehicles, uh, rage. I mean, it's just a terrible thing to do. In the summertime, all you have to do is leave your window open a little bit. If you live in most neighborhoods, you'll hear some yelling for too long. And it's a terrible thing because yelling and screaming at one another has terrible effects. I read this week that it can cause headaches. Yelling at someone can bring on migraines, chest pains, achy bones. The ones who receives the yelling, the one who does it as well. You put yourself at risk for hypertension, cardiovascular issues, depression, and guilt. Yelling at someone creates self-acceptance problems. In fact, they have likened when someone is yelled at, they actually develop symptoms of PTSD. I'm telling you, folks, yelling at people is a terrible thing, and Christians should never yell. Now, there's only one time for a Christian to yell, and the Bible talks about it. Psalm 47 and verse 1, clap your hands, all people, shout unto God with the voice of triumph. Now, you know the negative effects of yelling is well known. I mean, it's just terrible. But did you know there's actually positive effects of yelling? Did you know that it has uh, cardiovascular uh, benefits? I mean, just yelling is just, you know, you get all that uh, adrenaline going and you get your heart pumping and get your you know, respiration rate up. I mean, it's just a tremendous, uh, you know, uh, physical exercise. Here, what this verse is saying is, because our God is such a victorious God, because He's such a great God, the most natural expression is to shout in victory. The idea is we're supposed to be cheerleaders for the Lord. You go, God. <laughs> you go. Man, you're great, God. It's an interesting thing about uh, yelling and victory, it just makes you smile. It just gives you, you know, when your team is winning, it just makes you feel good. I read this week about a 
study done by the University of Cardiff. And they were saying that, strange, this is a strange study, that people who can't frown because of too many Botex, uh, Botox injections, so they can't frown too many Botox injections, they, strangely enough, they reported feeling less sad than the control group that could frown. The idea is if you put a smile on your face, it just makes you feel better. So anyway, there you go. The idea is let's go out and get some Botox this week and you'll feel better. No, really. I think you ought to get some Bible Botox. Amen. Shout. Shout for God. Now, the only thing I can say is you're going to have to find a place to shout because it's not always easy to shout in your neighborhood and uh, close all the windows up and uh, turn the sound loud. Uh, there's a couple of times during the week I try to shout. I try to shout every Sunday morning and before I come to church because uh, I want to say, you go, God, go. <laughs> You're so good. And uh, I especially like to do it because Abby is sleeping and uh, I just makes uh, parenting a joy. And um, then uh, there's uh, evil speaking. That is the word for slander. Now, it is actually the Greek word blasphemia, which uh, we get the English word blaspheme. But it is hurting, as you might imagine, it is hurting the reputation of others, and specifically, oftentimes, in reference to God. And I will tell you, I shudder as I read the blasphemy against God in America today. The radical left in America is blasphemous. I mean, I've never seen like it in all my days. The Speaker of the House, who is from California, claims to be a good, God-fearing Catholic. And certainly on Ash Wednesday, very publicly, she puts her little ash on her head. At the same time, this same lady, woman, she advocates for partial birth abortion. Do you know what partial birth abortion is? Partial birth abortion virtually means that you can abort a child at any time up until an actual birth at nine months. They can have uh, an abortion at eight months. In fact, here's what she said specifically, and I quote, partial birth abortion is sacred ground, meaning it is the God-given right of a woman and a man to abort this child. Now, friends, that is slanderous. You talk about blasphemy, that's blasphemy right there. And I think we ought to be outraged at things like that. But here's what this verse is saying. It is saying, let all, notice the word all at the beginning, all blasphemy. Now, we would agree that that is blasphemy, what I just mentioned. But God said all blasphemy. Sometimes we blaspheme in smaller ways. We gossip. Laura Schlesinger, the great uh, Jewish writer, my name is Gossip. I have no respect for justice. I maim without killing. I break hearts and ruin lives. I am cunning and malicious and gather strength with age. The more I'm quoted, the more I'm believed. I flourish at every level of society. My victims are helpless. They cannot protect themselves against me because I have no face. To track me down, it's impossible. The harder you try, the more elusive I become. I am nobody's friend. Once I tarnish a reputation, it is never the same. I topple governments, wreck marriages, ruin careers, cause sleepless nights, heartaches, and indigestion. 
I spawn suspicion, generate grief. I make innocent people cry in their pillows. Even my name hisses gossip. I make headlines and headaches before you repeat a story. My friend, ask yourself, is it true? Is it fair? Is it necessary? If not, shut up. (laughs) Well said. There is a sixth and final uh, gripe that we're going to replace with grace, and that is the word malice. Malice is a desire to hurt somebody. It is a grudge that you nurse and you carry and we keep going. The idea, God says here, is to let go and let God. Some people carry and grudge nurses for months and years and even decades. One day a neighbor was leaning on an old fence around a farm watching his neighbor farm plowing with a mule, struggling, pulling on the reins. And after a while, he said, I don't want to tell you how to run your business, friend, but he said you could save yourself a lot of work if you'd just give verbal commands to that old mule instead of tugging on all those lines. That stubborn old farmer pulled out a big old handkerchief from his pocket, wiped his face. He said, I reckon you're right, but that animal kicked me five years ago, and I haven't spoken to him since. I wonder who the real mule was there. I haven't spoken to them for all that time. The fact is, grudges are heavier the longer they're carried. You'd say, well, I don't know if I have a grudge or not. Well, let me just ask you this. When you're all alone and when it's dark, what are some of those negative things that start spinning in the mind, those little demons, and we all have them? What are those demons? It's time to let that malice go. How do we possibly let go? Verse 32, let's read 432 together. Ready, begin. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. How do we get, how do we tame the tongue? How do we uh, take a proactive step towards this. Well, three p- specific ways here. God says, first of all, be kind. Be kind. The idea, the Greek word there is Christos. It's the word we get for gracious. And by the way, won't, don't we have a gracious God? We have a gracious God. I mean, He forgives, and what a wonderful God for what He does for us. In fact, First Peter chapter two and verse three, Peter said, "The more I know about the Lord." The more I see all that God does for our lives, I say, I have tasted that the Lord is gracious. The longer I live, the more I realize how gracious the Lord is. When I wasn't friendly, God was friendly to me. When I wasn't patient, God was patient with me. When I wasn't pleasant, God was pleasant with me. When I wasn't gentle, God was gentle with me. When I wasn't courteous, God was courteous with me. God said, here, just be kind in your outward expressions, in your tone, your words, even your text messages, your emails. Let's be kind. Let's take a few seconds to just be warm. Before you get right into the matter, let's kind of be like the Europeans, you know? They, you know, they'll kind of, how are you, my friend? Not just Americans, you know, we just rush into it, you know? You know, let's get the job done, but Let's talk for a second. How are you, my friend? Tell me how you are. How is your day going? Let's take a few moments to be kind. The way that we speak and what we do, and I'm preaching to myself here, but let's talk nice. 
Let's not be biting or harsh and angry. You'd say, well, pastor, I don't want to be fake. It's not who I am. And to that I say, praise the Lord. (laughs) You'd say, well, if I'm so kind like that, that's just not who I am. And amen, (laughs) that's good. That's a good thing. You'd say, well, you, you, you know, I don't want to be fake. You know, well, we actually, God does want us to be fake. That's exactly what he's saying. I'm not talking about putting on a facade, but I'm talking about putting on, as he says. In fact, go back to verse 22 of the same chapter. Put off concerning the old man, that former things he used to do. Verse 23, be renewed. Verse 24, put on, put it on. Now, when you put something on, it may not be me, but it's what you put on. You'd say, well, it's, it's not who I am. <laughs> Folks, let me tell you something. You don't want to know the real Tim Pollock. You say, oh, P- Tim Pollock is a put-on. Yes, he is. I put on kindness in the morning. I work at it. Now, I don't always get it right. <laughs> Pauline will tell you, I don't get it always right. Sometimes I'm kind of sharp or whatever, but I'll tell you what, the same thing is true for all of us. But you don't want, that's the real Tim Pollock. The, real, the, the Christ-honoring Tim Pollock is kind. You'd say, well, um, have you ever heard that statement, fake it till you make it? That's kind of, in a sense, what God's saying. He's saying, put on kindness, put on kindness, and tell us who you are. Put it on. Put it on. It includes my words. It includes the tone of my words. I think it even includes our facial expressions, our countenance. Have you ever realized how many times the Bible talks about their countenance? Start in the book of Genesis, go all the way through the book of Revelation. How many times it talks about the face, the countenance? Why is God always talking about people's faces, you know, and Paul with this kind of a face, or and David with this face, or Abraham with this face, or in the book of Revelation with a countenance? I mean, God cares about our countenance, and so should we. Many times we uh, don't have to say a word. Our face says it for us. Abraham Lincoln, when he was president, was advised to include a certain man in his cabinet, but he refused. They asked him why. He said, I don't like his face. The person said, Mr. President, that poor man over there is not responsible for his face. And Mr. Lincoln responded, every man over 40 is responsible for his face. The truth is, we are responsible for our face. Well, I can't help my face. Yes, we can. Um, My dad used to tell me, he'd say, son, I want you to go to the mirror and I want you to stare at it. Not because you're vain, but I want you to look at your face when it's resting. Look at your face and then I want you to look at what you have to do to greet somebody and to talk to somebody. That's the kind of face you try to put yourself on. He said, now what I want you to work on is when you're driving your car, as you're just driving your car, try to have that kind of a face. And uh, I still remember those words. Uh, Not that I do it. I try, but uh, I'm sure I don't do it. But I will say, I have actually been in my car and looked to the car next to me and then looked on that side and thought, I better get out of here as fast as I can. Because that guy over there looks like an axe murderer. <laughs> that person there looks like he's going to shoot me if I... I mean, most people, their resting face, it's just not a good thing to look at. And uh, folks, we need to have a face that says, I'm a kind person. Some of the persons said, have a yes face. Have you ever gone into a uh, you know, place of business 
and wanted to ask a, somebody something, and you'll look for somebody who has a yes face. You're not going to look for somebody who has a no face. He's like, no, I, I'm not. They just look scary. I don't even want to talk to that lady or that guy over there. That is, they did. I don't know what it, their face. Now, truth is, they may not have. They may not be that kind of a person. And sadly, uh, you know, it's hard to judge people like that. But the fact is, we ought to work on it. That's the point. Be kind. There's nothing unbiblical about just being a kind person. Number two, be tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted. Now, folks, you're going to love this, especially if you're in the medical profession. Tenderhearted actually means have healthy bowels. That's exactly what that verse means. Have healthy bowels. The Greek word used there, it was used by Hippocrates in 400 B.C. about a person's bowels. That's the exact Greek word there. Now, I, I will say, I think we all agree we ought to have healthy bowels. Amen? So, so we'll get that out of the way. But the idea is that in the Greek culture... A person's uh, bowels was considered the, the heart. It was the seat of their emotions. But they changed it over the years, and I'm glad they did. Because I can't just imagine looking at my wife and saying, Honey, I love you with all my bowels. And, uh, or my achy, breaky bowels. And uh, the fact is, we ought to have, we ought to be, have a heart that's a, a kind heart. You'd say, well, what are you saying, Pastor? The word tenderhearted actually means be compassionate. Compassionate. The, Greek, or the uh, English word compassionate comes from two words, come meaning with and passion meaning a heart. Having a heart with that person. It's ex- it's, that's the way it's used in verse Peter 3 and verse 8. Finally, be of one mind. Having compassion. Having compassion, love as brethren, be pitiful and courteous. I may not have the money, I may not have the time, but I can certainly struggle with others in my heart, their hurts, their hang-ups, their habits. Sometimes I can't do any more than just look at them and say, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry that you're hurting. I'm sorry that you didn't get what you were hoping for. I'm sorry for what you've been going through. We can't do any more than that. But that's what compassion means. It means just you feel with them. Weep with those who weep, Scripture says. Be tenderhearted. It's words, yes, but sometimes it's actions. I was talking with Abigail, our daughter, only child at home now. And Abigail is in nursing, in her last semester of nursing, almost her last. We were talking about the, the nursing profession and how that how important it is for nurses who are often on the very front line of helping people, and they are expected to have compassion. Sometimes doctors don't have as much as they ought to, and, uh, and many do, but, uh, but we're talking about how that sometimes you can't have verbal compassion, but you can have action compassion. In fact, sometimes you have to detach from the situation so that you can be the one that's taking care of what needs to be taken care of. And, uh, that's, uh, and, and that's, I think, uh, good because God's saying here that when duty requires it, we don't have to be mean and nasty, but let's take care of business. It's not that we always have to, you know, say all these little nice little words because sometimes you just have to get the job done. But do so in a compassionate way, kind, tenderhearted. The third proactive step, be forgiving. Be forgiving even as, and that 
The little as there is the most important word in that entire, because it gives us the concept. Be forgiving. No, I, I'm just not a forgiving person. I'm just not. Uh, you, you hit me, I hit back. You hit me hard, I hit you back harder. I mean, that's just who I am. But God said, you wouldn't do that if you did it like God. Because as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. How did God forgive us? There are three ways that God forgives us. He made the decision to live with the painful fact of our sin. And that's what we do when we forgive. We look at that person and we say, you know what? That person did sin. I can't go back and change that. It is what it is. But I can live with that. You can either do life with bitterness or without. But you can't change the fact of the sin. The sin happened. Number two, he canceled the debt we owed him. We owe so much to God, but he canceled it. He doesn't use our, his, our offense against us. You'd say, well, I don't feel like I was sinned against God that much. Well, I used an illustration. I've used it over the years many times with the lost, trying to get them to a point where they know they need God. said, you know, let's imagine just sinning just three times a day, maybe a lie, maybe a thought of anger, maybe lust, but three times a day. Pretty possible, right? Three times a day. Well, that's a thousand sins a year. <laughs> Multiply that by 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We're talking about some serious amount of crimes there against God. The fact is uh, he canceled it all because uh, he uh, is not going to use it against us. There's a third way that God forgave us, and that is he is determined to do us good rather than evil. Even though we are his enemy and he saved us, he doesn't hold that against us. Romans 12 and verse 20 says, therefore, if thine enemy hunger, we were his enemy and yet he feeds us. We are thirsty and yet he gives us drink and so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head or you will create a conviction in their heart. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. It just means that you just wish them well. I don't wish any harm to my enemy. That's the issue. There are some myths about forgiveness, and I love this uh, little um, article that I read by Sam Storms, and it's a complete article. You can get it on your own, but five myths about forgiveness. Let me give those to you very quickly. As I mentioned, we have a lot to cover here, but uh, I love it. Forgiveness is not forgetting. And I think people misunderstand forgiveness thinking, my friend, there is no way that I can forget what that person did. Did you know that God doesn't ask you to forget? God doesn't, uh, people say, well, God forgets. No, he chooses not to remember. And that's a big difference because God is omniscient. He can't forget. It's against his nature. He knows everything, but he chooses not to remember and my friend, it is mentally, it is emotionally impossible to forget. It just is. I mean, the hurts that some of you have had to go through, maybe as a child, maybe as an adult, whatever, I mean, it is impossible for you to forget. And I understand that. But we can choose not to remember. And that's a difference. 
I can choose on God's, by God's grace to say, you know what, uh, we'll just move on. Number two, the second myth, forgiveness does not entail the absence of feeling pain. It does not mean that you don't feel the pain anymore. Well, I know I've forgiven them because I don't feel it anymore. Truth is, I think you can still feel the pain that someone inflicted on you, still feel the, the sense of that without being unforgiving. Because the only way to stop feeling basically is to die. <laughs> either physically die or emotionally die. And emotionally dying is not good either. Sometimes people say, I just feel like I'm dead inside. And that's actually not a good thing. We want to make sure our emotions are healthy and vibrant and warm and reaching out. And let's not kill our emotions so that we can somehow stop the pain. No, that does not that what that means. There's a third myth about forgiveness, and that is that it does not mean that you cease longing for justice. Now, vengeance uh, on my part is a bad thing. But in and of itself, righteous vengeance is not evil. Otherwise, God would be evil. Vengeance is mine, meaning it's a good thing when I do it. (laughs) But it's not your world. It's It's a thing that I do as deity. Forgiveness does not mean that you ignore the wrong. Forgiveness does not mean that you minimize the offense. Forgiveness does not mean that you expect responsibility to be taken for the sin. All of that doesn't mean forgiveness. It just means that you can let it go for God. Number four, forgiveness does not mean that you make it easy for the offender to hurt you again. I've heard people say, well, if you've forgiven them, you can just, uh, you know, go out and have dinner with them, folks. I'm sorry, that just doesn't work. <laughs> that's just not going to work. It just, that's just not the way that God intended. And there are some people that have hurt so bad that there must be boundaries on the relationship. That's just uh, necessary. True love never enables. True love never encourages sin. True love never rewards sin. True loving person, can, you can be forgiving and not uh, make them easy for to hurt you or your family or your ministry again. And then number five, forgiveness is rarely a one-time climactic event. It would be nice if forgiveness was, I've forgiven them, it was done. And it happens, praise God, for the power of the Holy Spirit to do that in our life. But the fact is, for many, forgiveness is a process. In fact, it is almost uh, sometimes a daily affirmation, <laughs> a reaffirmation, sometimes an hourly reaffirmation, sometimes weekly. But it, And the Bible has ways to work on that. He says if they compel you to go to a mile, go two miles. And there are ways to kind of work on this whole thing. But the fact is, God... Uh, don't imagine that I'm an unforgiving person because it comes back to my mind. It's just impossible that those things don't come back. The idea then is just to give it back to the Lord once again. And that's what God is saying here. He's saying, if you will examine ourselves, do I speak graciously? Someone said something the other day I was so grateful to hear. They said, Pastor, uh, I've been in the community for many years. And he said, and he, they're a member of our church now. And they said, you know, um, one of the things that drew us to the church was that the church had a good reputation. 
I like that. The church had a good reputation in the community. Thank you. Brothers and sisters, thank you. Thank you that your demeanor, your words, your actions, the, the way you transact business, the, the things you do in the neighborhood, the places you are, but in the community, a good example, a, a good reputation. Praise God for that. And folks, let's keep that up. Let's make sure that when someone says, that's a, that's a home church person. I, uh, this has been quite a few years ago now, maybe 15 years ago, and my wife, uh, Lynette had to go to the doctor. I was an internist in Stockton. And uh, in the course of the conversation there, he inquired about me, and I told him I was a pastor. And he said, what church? And I said, the home church. He stopped. He looked at me. He said, I want to tell you something about the people of the home church. I thought, oh, good night. Why did I have to bring that up now? You know, guy operating on my wife here. Oh my goodness. He's going to charge me a million dollars. going to, who knows what he's going to say. I'm stuck in this. Oh man. He said, I will tell you. He said, I've had the occasion of meeting, he said, I think three or four of your members. And he said, I will tell you to a one, they are the most genuine, God-fearing people I have ever met. I just said, thank you, Jesus, right there. Thank you, Lord. You know what? What an what a awesome thing. Brothers and sisters, thank you. Thank you for keeping the name of Jesus high. Keep it high. Let's be tenderhearted. Let's, let's have good bowels. <laughs> let's, uh, let's be kind in our words with each other. When someone overhears us talking with the children, let's it let it be a good thing when they hear us speaking on the phone or when they read an email or uh, one wife told me the other day, she said, I, I sh probably shouldn't do it, but I looked over at my husband's phone and I saw the, e the text message you sent him. She said, thank you. Thank you for the kind words and for the scripture you gave him. You know, that when someone peeps at our emails or our text messages or the words that we say, let's make sure you say, well, that's just not who I am. I'm, not, I'm just not naturally a nice person. You're right. Naturally, we're not a nice person. Put on kindness. Put on tender heart. Put on forgiveness. Put it on. Just put it on. Fake it till you make it. With God's help. Now, friends, some of us perhaps are here and we have to be honest and say, you know what? I, I have spoken behind some people's backs. I have gossiped. I have had some malice or some wrath, and I have had these explosions of anger that I know are a terrible example. And if that is the case, let me just say, as a body, we can't, we can't be all that we can be if we don't have that kind of together heart to say, you know what, let's make sure that from the outside and who we are, let's let it make a positive impact for God. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.